0: Welcome to Twin Peaks Cinema. This episode covers The Vanishing, a Dutch film from the 80s that has some fascinating similarities to Twin Peaks, some connections, some contrasts. It's from the same period, really, that Twin Peaks was birthed, so that's interesting in and of itself. And there was actually an American remake, which I'll touch on briefly, although I haven't seen it. Before we get to that, just want to update on the work that I've been up to uh, elsewhere just in terms of podcasts in the past month. Uh, I published on the Lost in the Movies feed The podcast, The Vulnerable Throne, with four classic capsules, Uh, really one big capsule on The Bitter Tea of General Yan, about seven or eight minutes on that film, and then some very brief discussions, like a minute or two, just brief reflections on uh, some other films involving... Uh, Royalty led astray, I guess you could say. Uh, Those other films were Knights of the Round Table, Land of Pharaohs, and Rasputin and the Empress. I also made a guest appearance on the podcast Creamed Corn in the Universe to discuss the character of Sarah Palmer. Meanwhile, I also had Colin, the host of that podcast, onto my Twin Peaks conversations uh, split over YouTube. And uh, Patreon for the $5 a month tier. So we discussed his podcast and just general thoughts on David Lynch, how he got into Twin Peaks really kind of late, like he got into in 2019. Now he's deep diving. So that was fascinating for me. And I think for other listeners who've been with it for a while longer, certainly since before the return, I also renewed my Lost in Twin Peaks podcast with uh, episode number 40 on season three, part 11. So I put up the Illustrated Companion on my site. I'll link to that. You can look at all the categories with screenshots and stuff and see what's coming up for the week. Because right now we are up to, I guess at this point it would be the mythology or, no, the current events. And the uh, most recent one I think is in the weeds where I look at characters and statistics and all that stuff. So definitely check those out. This podcast was going through the summer and I had to pause And now I've got a little backlog going, and I'll go through the end of the year to uh, finish up season three. So daily podcasts with a week on each episode, each day, a different aspect of that episode. I continued my Patreon uh, podcast for September, uh, a little bit belated, but put out another episode, uh, or or rather a part two. I think part one came out before the previous Twin Peaks Cinema, so I already mentioned it. Uh, but this one focuses on the 90s and the 70s. So the two big films it focuses on are Pulp Fiction and Clute. And then there are capsules on other films like Exotica, Network, Superman, Magnolia, Saturday Night Fever, Thelma and Louise, Reality Bites, Boogie Nights, Nashville, Scream, Gremlins 2, Romeo and Juliet, Set It Off, The Firm, The Pelican Brief, The Client, The Ice Storm, Dangerous Minds, and uh, then I had some archive readings of my... Uh, written reviews of The Conversation and Enemy of the State. So a lot of 70s and 90s stuff there in uh, different sections on that podcast. I also put out an October episode, which was a Halloween special for Patreon for the dollar a month tier. That was on Bram Stoker's Dracula, along with some other subjects and updates. So fairly busy month in terms of podcasts, now that I look back on it, catching up with stuff, making a guest appearance and so forth, bringing back a podcast. But now it's time for Twin Peaks Cinema, so let's shift gears to the world of the vanishing. And uh, before we get there, just want to remind everyone this is part of a mini series. Uh, every three months, I have like a three month season for Twin Peaks Cinema. And this three month series uh, season is called Disordered Stories. I'm looking at films that have uh, stories told out of order in fascinating ways that uh, relate to Twin Peaks. And last month's was a bit of a lighter fare Back to the Future Part 2. This month we're going to get a little darker, so on to the vanishing. No, I didn't. No. Oui? Et uh, je, je veux. Uh, uh, um... Uh. Levez Violet, c'est ce Si, est mort. Et l'homme qui voulait savoir c'était vous. The Vanishing is a Dutch film that came out in 1988. It's about a couple who goes on vacation, I believe from the Netherlands to France, to the French countryside. And uh, they're driving along, film opens with them, driving down the road, they get two bicycles on the roof, just this sort of routine road trip, and they're talking uh, as they go through this big dark tunnel, they go on a little detour, like, let's get off the highway and just kind of look at this, at these side roads and the countryside, and just this casual decision, you know, no big deal, and of course this uh, all these things lead to where the movie's going, but uh, as they go through this dark tunnel... She tells him about a dream she had. She says, my nightmare, I had it again last night. Her name is Saskia, by the way, and his name is Rex, this couple. Uh, and I believe they're married. I've seen references even on the Criterion disc, oddly enough, like on the actual case for it. It says his girlfriend goes missing, but he refers to her as her, his wife in the film, so I'm pretty sure she's his wife. But she says, my nightmare, I had it again last night. And he says that you're inside a golden egg, and you can't get out, and you float all alone through space forever. So he's heard this dream before. And she says, yes, the loneliness is unbearable. No, this time there was another golden egg flying through space. And if we were to collide, it'd be over. And this story kind of becomes a through line for the the whole film. It's actually based on a short story called The Golden Egg, so this concept was always at the core of this. And, of course, when you think about golden eggs flying through space, what does that make you think of? But, you know, we'll get to the Twin Peaks connections eventually. Uh, I will say, this is a film, It's in a way, it's hard to spoil because it gives you crucial information right away, very early on. Uh, But it does withhold some things, and as you watch it, you're figuring things out and piecing it together, getting some puzzle pieces before you think you'd get them. Uh, It's sort of a unique experience, so... I would caution if you care about that type of thing, if you like to just go in blind, you may want to see this movie before you hear a discussion of it. But uh, So in other words, I'm going to be spoiling things, but uh, whether that matters to you or not, you know, it's a, it's a tricky film to assess that with. So... They end up at a rest stop. Uh, actually, no, I should say first, the car breaks down in the middle of the tunnel, which is the perfect moment to trigger this disappearance. But it doesn't happen then, interestingly enough. So she's look frantically looking for a flashlight inside the car. He's saying, I'm gonna go get some gasoline. So he gets leaves the car there with trucks and things shuddering by and she's screaming, and it's like her dream, like, don't leave me. I don't wanna be, you know, I don't wanna be floating alone in space, basically. She's stuck in this little vehicle in the middle of this dark tunnel with dangerous things whizzing past and she uh, you know and, and he's walking off and he has this weird smirk on his face as he hears her calling his name so i mean she could go with him but she wants to stay and look for the flashlight he wants to get the gasoline so they split it's a bit of a quarrel and he it, like i said he has this strange expression of satisfaction as she's yelling for him it makes him seem kind of unsympathetic and uh, he comes back she's not in the car uh, he drives out of the tunnel toward the light. You see the light envelop, and you see her silhouette, and there she is waiting at the end of the tunnel. So it's like a, a little bit of a false alarm, a red herring. She didn't disappear in this moment, even though we know the movie's called The Vanishing. Uh, if you've seen the trailer, which I just played, you know a lot more than just that the movie's called The Vanishing, and I'll, I'll talk about that when we get through the the, the plot. But the, the, that trailer gives away an unbelievable amount, even for a movie, which, as I said, gives you clues and things early on so uh, we we actually even meet around this point before they even arrive at the rest stop this guy who's putting on a cast this bearded man sitting in the car calmly like placing a fake cast and sling on his arm so that right away is ringing alarm bells like what's this guy doing so they get to the rest stop they have all these interactions that she goes in the store she comes back so she's not yet you know uh disappeared or whatever like there's a the, the 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 she's still around they bury this coin together under a tree and uh pledge you know she's going to go off and drive so she goes in to get one more thing and that's it uh, he takes a snapshot a polaroid in the parking lot when he's waiting for her of of his car to make some kind of joke and turns out you can actually see her head and somebody else indistinct in the background uh, that he didn't even know he was capturing And that's like the last anyone sees of her. So he goes inside. He asks questions, finds out she was with a man at the coffee machine. She went outside. So this is the whole premise of the movie. Now things get kind of crazy. So we fast forward three years. We find out that she's never been found. He's putting up posters of her still after all this time. We even see the bearded man, see one of them and say, uh, well, actually I, we've seen quite a lot of the bearded man up to this point. Um, before we get to the three years later, we actually go back and follow his whole process up to uh, when he obviously was the one who would have kidnapped Saskia. Like we have a whole long sequence where he is uh, driving to this country house that he occasionally, um, you know, has his family at, but he goes to a lot alone. He's he's got a whole family: a wife, two daughters. He's a esteemed professor at this university. And for some reason, he's obsessed with, like, counting his own pulse, practicing how he would uh, chloroform someone, like, walking around the back of the car, how much time he has after they're chloroformed, and so forth. So, like, he's obviously plotting out to to do this to some random stranger because he keeps trying – it. there's, like, a female hitchhiker who tries to uh, get him to take her, and then she's got to – a guy who's hiding behind a rock, like, "Oh, I'm coming too," and he's like, "No, I was just stopping for the woman." He drives on. There's other situations. I can't remember which come in this part and which come later because we keep the timeline of the movie. We keep flashing back for his experiences um, leading up to the 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 kidnapping. We don't know that he if he killed her or what happened next. Like she's just disappeared at that point. But we know all of his, we don't really know his motivations, but we know all of his actions leading up to this kidnapping. And it's odd they even play it as a bit of a comic thing. Like his, his slapdash attempts to get a woman to get into his car. And like the husband comes along and is like, what are you hitting on my wife? He even stops one woman at one point who turns out to be his daughter's soccer coach. Like she recognizes him. He doesn't recognize her and her response. Uh, is interesting she like everyone else thinks he's just trying to pick up women doesn't think he's like a crazy murderer and is like you can go to this this uh, gas station and there's a bunch of foreigners there and you won't run into anyone you know so if that's what you're trying to do i i get it and uh you know so everybody even his own family at one point thinks he has a mistress and they're giving him all these presents like they're all resigned but accepting to this fact that he has this double life they just don't know what it actually is. So this is the whole portrait we're getting of the psycho villain character throughout. The bearded man is named Raymond and he's starting to have enough of this because Rex is going on TV still doing interviews. Uh, Raymond lures him to a cafe across from where he lives and or works and watches uh, Rex down in the plaza at one point he's screaming, I know you're here, I know you're here. So Raymond feels like he's got to do something, so he reaches out to Rex. Um, he's been reaching out to him a little bit, you know. As I said, luring him into that cafe area, but he reaches out to him further, and uh, actually just shows up at his apartment and tells him, like, "I'm the man who did it. Uh, here's, you know, he shows him something. I can't remember. I think it's a key. Ch- I think it's her keychain or something that uh, shows that he was the one who took Saskia." And Rex, he gets Rex to go with him, which is kind of incredible. Instead of going to the police or something, he says, you can't prove anything. And if you go, you'll never know what happened. And I know that's what you care about. More than getting revenge against me, I know you want to know what happened to her. And so the last part of the movie is Rex and Raymond going for this long ride uh, back into France where, you know, obviously, where Raymond is leading him is kind of to wherever he took Saskia. And he's telling him his story as he goes along. And we see more flashbacks that reveal Raymond uh, jumped off a balcony when he was a teenager because he was like sitting there and thinking almost philosophically, why shouldn't I jump? Is it predestined I won't jump? Well, I have to jump to prove that I could do it. And he has this compulsion. Now, what he describes... (laughs) to uh, Rex. He says, well, what did I find out about myself in that moment? He doesn't say that I was like compulsive or this or that. He says, I'm a sociopath. So like he doesn't care, which is an interesting conclusion to draw from that moment where he kind of hurt himself. Um, I don't know how clinically accurate that is, but the idea is he has no restraints. And so at one point, he remembers rescuing a young girl when he's out with his family. She's drowning in the, in the uh, canal, and he jumps in swims over, saves her, and then in his mind, he's like, well, my daughter thought I was a hero, so I had to be capable of the most evil thing. To-. It's, it's not a totally logical thing, but he becomes obsessed with this idea of like, well, now I have to conceive the most horrible thing I could do. And he says repeatedly throughout the movie, "He's he's uh, well, he says, killing is not the worst thing I can think of. He tells him that, uh, you know, he's, I can't remember what brings it up, but he says he's very claustrophobic, so that's a little clue right there. And as the movie ends, he gives Rex something to drink. He says, "If you drink this, you'll know what happened to her. This is the only way I can show you. You, the same thing will happen to you." He's like, "So if I, if she dies, I die." He's like, "Well, you know, I can't tell you what's going to happen, but this is the way to find out." And Rex refuses. Then he, cha- he di- They're at the gas station when he refuses. Uh, at night nobody else is there and then it's raining and thundering very dramatic and he runs to the tree where they buried the coin he digs it up he sees she buried two coins together there to represent them and he goes back and he says okay he drinks it he gets in the car he says i owe it to her and then so as it sort of fades out we fade up we find out where he is he's inside of a coffin being buried alive and uh So that's what happened to Saskia. And now that's what's going to happen to him. And he's flickering his lighter and yelling and no one can hear. The film ends with uh, Raymond sitting on his little country property with his wife planting flowers. I don't know, maybe right on top of where they are or something. But he's buried both of this couple down. And there's actually the last shot of the film is a newspaper that says double disappearance. Uh, The man whose girlfriend went missing has now gone missing himself. And actually the film closes with these little, um, what's the word I'm looking for? These, these like sort of, uh, dissolves or whatever that close in around these two round portraits of the two characters on the front of the newspaper, the two portraits side by side, like the golden eggs in her story. So that's how it ends a very dark ending. And curiously enough, the uh, director, George Schluser remade this film, uh, Five years later, I think, is an American, like Hollywood film with Sandra Bullock and Jeff Bridges and Kiefer Sutherland and uh, changed the ending, made it like a happier ending, supposedly. I don't know how. I don't know the details of it because I haven't seen it, but all of the reviews that are written later mention this film and how terrible and how much it ruins it. Uh, the remake takes place in near Mount St. Helens, which is kind of cool. I've talked about that recently in a Patreon podcast and how in some ways that even relates to the work of David Lynch. This remake is widely disparaged, although you will see on the YouTube videos of The Vanishing and The Sluicer interviews people saying, I like the remake better here and there, but it, generally the critical consensus on it is certainly not good. And uh, Adam Nayman in The Ringer has this kind of hilarious observation that maybe uh, Sluzer was making like a meta move here that reflected his own character. So he says, I've always liked to think that Sluzer's reasons for directing the remake were more than mercenary. Maybe that they mirrored Raymond's warped but relatable rhetoric. Having created something essentially perfect, the director had to do the most horrible deed he could envision at that moment, and in the bargain, guarantee its classic status. So that's kind of a funny thought here. Uh, Why did he direct this? Maybe it was like his own perverse Raymond-esque gesture to... Uh, destroy and enshrine his work simultaneously. So with that note, I would say you can imagine this story being told a number of ways. It's funny, thinking back on it, what I remembered and didn't remember. Very distinctly remembered the ending, like almost exactly how it was shot. Other things along the way, totally forgot Forgot how early on they introduced Raymond. The fact that we see all of his leading up to the killing um, before the kid... Well, we know it's a killing ultimately, but the kidnapping before... Um, moving into the future and Sasuke, and it, it, it's compelling. Like I'm almost, you know, you can't rewatch the film really not completely forgetting what you what you saw. So it wouldn't quite work, but it would be interesting to like cut different versions of this. One where we don't meet Raymond until Rex does. Maybe one that's all from Raymond's point of view first, and the Rex and Sasuke are totally incidental, and they only become characters once. He's intervened in their lives. So there's all different ways you could do this that would shift the focus, like make it more of like a Hitchcockian study of this uh, serene cerebral killer, or make it more of like a desperate, terrible uh, experience of loss and, and no explanation whatsoever, which we kind of get in the film, but it's undercut a little bit, purposefully so, by seeing Raymond first, seeing that, okay, here's the guy who's going to do it. We may not know why yet, but clearly he's up to something. You know, like, there's so many different ways you could position this. And Sluzer, interestingly, kind of gets a little bit of all of them. Like, he finds exactly the right balance to make it so that you're getting... Uh, you 're getting a bit of each flavor of how you could experience this film without fully getting any of them now, how do we uh, why did I connect this to Twin Peaks? What are the connections to draw from it? Interestingly enough, when I first thought of what films I should discuss around this time this was this podcast was supposed to come out in uh for for patrons in july twenty twenty one originally it was supposed to come out right around the same time the coverage of the season two finale and the coverage of the vanishing. Um, but they—they they got these two golden eggs did not collide, let's say, as they were supposed to. And uh, so now that connection is a little lost. But actually, as I rewatched the film, I realized this doesn't have quite as strong a connection to the season two finale as I thought. My initial thinking was, OK, uh, Earl takes Annie. Cooper has, is compelled to follow her into the woods to his own fate. And there is something compelling about that idea, that that kind of luring someone with a loved one, a lost loved one. And making them kind of confront themselves and trapping them by using that that as kind of a bait. And there there is something similar conceptually to that. But beyond that conceptually, I think in terms of the feel of it, this film actually related much more for me to parts of even firewalk with me parts of season 3 certainly probably more than anything uh, it's interesting doing this twin peaks cinema how many films are opened up to twin peaks comparisons by season 3 that would not be as much by the earlier seasons that's kind of interesting but yeah definitely as i watched the film again i realized what this this desperate hunt for saskia really most resembles is the laura palmer investigation um, just the fact that she becomes kind of this iconic presence, we're seeing her face everywhere. She can't speak anymore. She's gone. This the the goneness of it is is the most distinctive element there. The way that both Twin Peaks and The Vanishing tap into this sort of mythology, this fear of loss, always, uh, most often, I should say, of, of beautiful young women. That 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 kind of uh, primal fear and and like obsessive quest to undo that the the sort of the symbolism i think of youth of some sort of innocence or whatever like that that these very human flesh and blood people come to symbolize in their absence and uh, there's so much going on around that to dig into but i was also struck by the fact that raymond as a villain he is this respectable Quirky, but reliable middle class father, I think that's important is like he's very normal and also very eccentric at the same time, and that's something that's very Leland Palmer. It's like, oh, look at this wacky guy, but we get him like he's down to earth at the same time like we we understand you know he's a, like the lovable guy you want to have around at like the committee meeting or the after party or something at work of like oh everybody likes this guy, let's go go, let's go golfing with Leland. he'll have some great stories and some wacky uh you know things that we'll all laugh at, but like he's He's safe. He's considered safe in some way, and so these two characters, I think, very much have that in common. And the fact that he is a father and that he's like very affectionate towards his daughters, uh, he is like. There's scenes at the dinner table that even remind me a little ways of *Firewalking*. There's a scene at the country house where he hides spiders in the drawer to frighten his daughter, and she screams. And he says, well, "Let's hear a louder scream." they all the whole family starts screaming, and they're just like this. Slightly, you know, very normal looking bourgeois family, but also like yelling loudly at the dinner table at the top of their lungs. And you get this sense of like, okay, they're they're that kind of like normy yet wacky uh, type of family, which I don't know that it necessarily, it, it's a thing, but it doesn't get that much representation all the time in movies. So when it does, it's kind of striking in that sense. But Um, And and it's interesting when it does, it's often in the case of like Firewalk and the Vanishing, like, oh, they seem wacky, but normally, really, they're just wacky, or at least, you know, the the, the patriarch is. So anyways, they're all screaming at this table. And really, the reason he's doing it is to test if anyone can hear them screaming uh, that far away. So he knows if he's safe when he captures these people and brings them to their farm. So even that has like this sinister tinge. And in the firewalk with me scene, it's actually from the missing pieces, not in the finished film where Leland has them all chanting in Norwegian and they're yelling, like laughing hysterically at the dinner table. of course he's got this ax sitting up there behind them the whole time. So there's like a menace to that as well, but there's a trust in him. And this is ultimately actually directly what undoes Uh, Saskia because when we finally see the scene where he lures her out which is an incredible scene by the way like because he's planned all this out how he's going to lure someone to like help him attach his trailer to his car and oh look I've got a cast I can't do it myself and things keep falling through at one point he even gets a woman into the front seat but then he like sneezes and he blows his nose with the chloroform thing and he's like oh shit well that's that so I'll be right back and he leaves and so that's not the woman he takes. And it ends up being Saskia because she approaches him and starts talking very friendly and and laughing and trying to speak in French and not quite getting it right. And he's just like amazed, like, wow, this is falling right. After all of my plans and all of my thinking, this is coming right to me. And she she likes his keychain and that's his in. He says, oh, well, I have a bunch of these keychains. I sell them and my in my car. Let's, let's go get them. Oh, okay. Right now. Yeah. Okay. So they go out to the car and he gets in the driver's seat and he just says calmly, oh, get in. And she kind of pauses for a second. Like, why do I need to get in to look at the keychains? And he's just matter of factly rooting through. And she has a moment of pause where she could get away. She could say, okay, something's not quite right here. Even though i got good vibes from this guy and, and I'm going to buy this keychain for my boyfriend or husband or whatever. And all of these good signs, there's something just off about why is he asking me to get into his car said, how did i get myself into the situation she turns and she looks this is why i've been telling this whole long anecdote of the film she turns and looks and he's got a picture of himself with his wife and his two daughters smiling arms around each other um up on the the dashboard of the car and she's like there's a moment of relief and she gets in the car and that's it that one mistake and so in the end just as often as the case with leland this facade of like the safe family man is that this would not be the person who would do this demented killing. That's what lures her in. And it's like, even as he's suffocating, you see this sense of like, oh my God, no, this doesn't make sense. This can't be happening to me. I My instincts told me this was safe. So there's something like terrifying about that in a way, like this idea that, um, you know, that that for all of the ominous foreshadowing, the one thing that that could save her is like, well, no, this isn't going to happen. This, this is, I can read the signs and see that this is safe. So it's like that, that idea of him being a sociopath who can mask his dementedness with this facade is, is at the core of the movie in a way that I think in a, in a different way, it's at the core. Firewalk. And Firewalk with me, it's like this manic swinging between the sort of uh stable Leland and the more demented bob inflected version that's abusing laura and tormenting her and all this stuff but there's a connection between them here it's less of a dichotomy it's like a one smooth process the masking of that raymond as a villain is kind of a combination of Wyndham and leland in particular uh, he has the the extreme rationalism and the, the kind of the thought process of Wyndham planning everything out meticulously and manipulating other people, using them in that way. He doesn't have, again, just like with Leland, with both of them, he doesn't have that like unhinged, um, un sort of uncontrolled psychotic side. It's a very controlled thing, but in terms of like his actions and how he operates as a villain and presents himself, uh, I guess, publicly or whatever... It's, it's a combination of Wyndham and Leland he doesn't really have much Bob or Mr. C in him interestingly even though Mr. C is like the calmest coolest villain he has like a deadness to him that's impossible like nobody sees Mr. C and it's like oh you're just ordinary Cooper wait a second something's off like they know right away there's just something totally off about this person he just vibes it all over the place whereas Raymond does not so in that way he's not like Mr. C and he doesn't have the crazy unhinged manic quality of Bob obviously Um, he does have the woodsman beard so I guess that's another (laughs) villain resemblance there Uh, but really I think his demeanor the way he acts moment to moment is almost more like the regular cooper than it is um of anyone else and and actually even though rex's role in the narrative resembles cooper where he is like this detective figure really trying to find out what happened to this young woman and feeling this obsession like through the years even after it should be over trying to go back and resolve it and go back to the scene of the moment of the disappearance or the you know the murder in the twin peaks case i guess in both cases and try to undo it in some way. Like, that whole aspect, his narrative role. So much like Cooper in Seasons 1, 2, and 3. But he doesn't act like Cooper. Like, he's much more uh, unstable and kind of frantic. And he doesn't have that Cooper-esque quality. Raymond actually does have that Cooper-esque quality. And I think the Cooper that Raymond most resembles is the Richard figure of Part 18, Um, particularly when he's driving Carrie back to her fateful destination, just like Raymond will be driving Rex through the dark in the night. Uh, You know, taking someone who doesn't quite know why they're motivated to go along, but telling them, like, here's what we're going to do, I'm going to take you here, Um, here's who I am, you're coming with me, type of thing. And the person is like, I don't know why I'm going, but I'm going. So that moment in the narrative is where the vanishing and uh, the Twin Peaks, I guess, most collide. So there's an idea that uh, Rex has to not just find the answer, but almost take Staskia's place in the narrative. And in this, the character that Rex actually comes to resemble most isn't Cooper. It's not even really a character, technically speaking. It's David Lynch, because the way that Lynch went back and wanted to kind of dig up Laura and not just like show her, but live the life through her like put himself in his in her shoes empathetically. Um, that really ends up being what Rex kind of does with Saskia, where he literally ends up uh, where she ends up. And Lynch did this both in the sense that he, you know, filmed her story and immersed himself in it, but also that he kind of suffered consequences as a result of this not being murdered obviously but uh, being the the film being attacked by critics and his career being derailed for a little bit by this film that he was so obsessed and determined to make against you know all advice or anything like that so i find that meta aspect really particularly fascinating um there's also an interesting mixture in rex's motivations which i think resembles cooper in some ways um, Martha Nockimson has written wonderfully about like the receptive Cooper versus the more determined Cooper and how um, in the first Red Room scene he's very receptive and listening to the universe of the second one he is, um, you know, in the at the end of season two, he's more like determined forcing himself to be this sort of rescuer figure and it doesn't go well. And uh, with Rex in this film, there's an interesting mixture of the need for control and the need to give up control. So in some ways, and there's like a very sort of gendered male-female aspect to this that you see in Twin Peaks as well, where it's like this classic male detective figure who's supposed to, uh, you know, have have authority over the situation and come to the answers, versus somebody who is more like trying to find, uh, trying to discover something they don't really understand and live within that knowledge in like a more direct way. And Rex's motivations are very, you know, at times he says he'd, he'd rather find out she's dead and know what happened to her than for her to be alive and not know, which is like a terrible thing to say, but it's sort of this impulse he feels. And the fascinating thing about the ending to me is uh, I think it's the richest thing about the end because there's one way you could read just as like a grim, dark kind of, Evil twist of like oh and then everybody died and the villain won and isn't that clever and maniacal in some way? I think that's how most people read it. I can see that, but there's like a more sort of poignant element to it as well, where Rex says he makes the decision to drink, the uh, to to drink what uh, Raymond has made for him to to knock him out. That he's not doing it so much to uh, how would I put this. His motivation is not necessarily to find out what happened. That's Raymond's interpretation. And, and, you know, based on things Rex has said, like, you have to know, even if it kills you, you have to know what happened. You, you know that. And it's like a reflection of the viewer's obsession to know the mystery solution. And, of course, reflects to Twin Peaks, this idea that Lynch had of, like, you don't tell who killed Laura Palmer. You're not supposed to tell, at least not till the end. And, like, the audience's desire to know is what killed the goose that... Let's you know put it out there that laid the golden eggs. So there we have the golden eggs again, um, and of course there's a cleverness to the story that this is based on being called the golden egg because this idea of like once you tell who killed it, the story's over. Um, so you're you know in addition to referencing her own story, I just really thought of that now. It hadn't occurred to me, but that in addition to uh, her her dream about the golden eggs flowing through space, it's like this idea of like the mystery itself being you know, the golden egg that once you crack open, you know, who killed her, who disappeared her, why they did it, etc. The story's done, the mystery's done, you can no longer live in it, which is where David Lynch certainly likes to live. So anyways, at that last moment, when uh, Rex first decides not to drink it, and then he races around a tree, he circles, he looks up, He, he digs into the dirt, finds where they left those coins, the linkage between them, he runs back, he's drinks it down and looks defiantly at Raymond like he's won, and he sits in the front seat and he says, I owed it to her. Now, this is key, I think. the the Ultimately, the decision he made was not to know what happened to Saskia, but to be with Saskia, because at this point, Raymond has told him the only way you're going to find out is by experiencing what happened to her. So this is the moment where he basically gets into his old golden egg, says he's going to collide with Saskia, and then it will all be over, like she said in her dream. So there's something kind of like beautiful about that almost in a way that this dark ending where he's claustrophobically stuck in a coffin. He's going to die. He's calling out, you know, he calls out his name. He says things, but then it's like, he's looking, he says something. I think he says something about the golden egg. He says her name. And it's almost like he, he's almost kind of gotten what he wanted out of this. Um, Even, and, and in a way, the last shot of Raymond sitting there watching his wife, he's got these weird glasses that kind of if I remember right, they pop out his eyes a little bit, like they make him look kind of odd. And he's sitting there grimacing, looking out as his wife waters the flowers. And this is a guy who can't love anyone. He can't accept anyone else's love, even though he has this nice little family. He's lost in his own mind, a totally isolated, lonely person. Like his golden egg's never going to collide with anyone. And in a way, uh, you know, uh, without even getting into the question of an afterlife, just more in this sort of philosophical realm, it's like Saskia and Rex. Have each other somehow in some perverse sense in the end. And I find that ending so rich and fascinating. And again, I think that ties into this sort of gender dichotomy of male-female, like in control, not in control, receptivity, so forth, that again, Martha Nockmson... Passion of David Lynch written so wonderfully about. And this idea that ultimately it's like by becoming Saskia that Rex redeems himself, not by quote unquote finding out what happened and like having the authority over the narrative again. So it's like this weird redemptive ending snuck inside of a much darker one. Uh, both of these stories too uh, are prequels and like parts of them I should say are almost like prequels before the mythology takes hold. I think this ties into the way it ends as well. Um, So like what I mean by that is we have the stuff with Rex and Saskia where they're driving toward the gas station unknowingly, like just a normal everyday thing. There's all these icons of this mundane moment, the Coke and the beer crushed on the ground, the keychain, the Polaroid, that as time passes and they become kind of fixed in his memory, like become icons, like iconographic totems of the mystery. Not just these mundane, everyday objects anymore, but they're now infused with this greater meaning of the last time he saw Sasuke and what could they mean and how could he trace them as clues. And I, I love that aspect, and that's something bears a lot of resemblance to Twin Peaks, except in Twin Peaks, we get these things as icons first. Here's the dirt mound of dirt with a firewalk in the note. Here's the half heart necklace. Here's the portrait of Laura and that portrait is so important I think in both um <clears throat> in in both The Vanishing and Twin Peaks. Here's this still frozen portrait of her smiling, all unreachable, all like icons of not just the mystery but how you can't ever reach the source of the mystery. And then David Lynch pulls the rug out like actually you can reach the source. Here's Firewalk with me. I'm going to thrust you right back into it and you're going to see a lot of the origin points, like something he does with Mulholland Drive, too, where it's like you get these larger-than-life symbols, and then you see what they refer to in like a mundane sense that motivates this kind of dream mythology existence. And what's so fascinating about how The Vanishing does it is it gives you that stuff first, both in Raymond's case, but all or sorry, in Rex's case, rather. I hope I haven't been mixing up their two names, the similarity there. In Rex's case, but also in Raymond's case, where we get all of the lead up, the mundane practice and how are you going to do this? What's motivating it? These two strands, you know, the again, golden eggs colliding. In this case, it's it's Raymond's and Rex's story. These two characters colliding in this way on their separate trajectories. And the collision creates this kind of mythology of this moment where the woman was lost. And as the years reel by, it's just fixed, ever fixed. You can't go back to it. You can't undo it. And the funny thing is the presence of Raymond, uh, where he keeps showing up, like he's in the cafe as Rex is arguing with his, his. he has like a second girlfriend who's trying to help him find Saskia, but also trying to help him move on from her. And eventually she just has to give up and leave. And so there's the scene where she's breaking up with him. She walks out the house. She's like, Saskia will always be there. It's like, again, this mythic, this unattainable past this thing you can't go back to and change. It's just fixed there, looking over you. And she walks down from the apartment, she's looking back up, doesn't realize Raymond's sitting right there. And to me, that constantly subverts that idea. It makes it like a, there's like a contradiction. The past, when Raymond's present, um, the past isn't remote and untouchable because he is this very human character who made all of it happen. And he's still alive and he's still puppeteering and instigating things. So like this idea that it's all remote and unreachable, He's the defiance of that. His presence in the narrative is like a very down-to-earth explanation of everything that happened, haunting the corners of the screen. Like, no, ultimately Rex is right. Like, you can reach the past. You can reach what happened. Um, So in a weird way, it kind of undercuts that, fascinatingly, I think. The film ends with Rex, ultimately, like, so if Saskia has sort of transcended and become this iconic portrait. The way we talk about Laura, you know, becoming a golden egg in part eight, where it's like Dido and the firemen are blessing her little round ball and sending it to earth in some way to fight Bob. There's this notion that like, I've always thought of it almost as coming after, even though chronologically you could say this is the atomic bomb, it's the 1940s, Laura is, you know, this is retconning Laura's origin story, Yeah, maybe in a sense. But the narrative, the way the narrative unfolds, we've already seen Twin Peaks, we've already seen Firewalk With Me, we've seen Laura's human suffering, now she's, like, becoming this kind of iconographic presence, which she was in a way back at the beginning. Like it's interesting that her school portrait is the photo inside of that ball that they're blessing. Like that's the iconic Lara that we knew in the pilot. So it's like, she was iconic, she kind of becomes human again, and then she becomes an even more elevated kind of icon uh, in the process of the narrative. And I think Saskia becomes this icon when she's on the poster, she's in the papers, we see her photo, she's permanently fixed in this place frozen in time and and unreachable and Rex wants to reach her you know at times again for more sort of selfish motives at times for almost more altruistic ones even if she's beyond his reach There's, he says at times it's an homage to a lost love that's what he tells the TV interviewer even if I can't find her it's an homage to a lost love and what does he become in the end He becomes that icon side by side with her in the newspaper. Now he is a fixed static portrait as well. Now he has sort of transcended the physical realm with her. And there's something, again, kind of like beautiful about that, where that's what she has become. And I guess uh, in Twin Peaks, where it ends... Uh, Cooper has never quite reached that space at the end of season three. If he does, it's the moment where he and Laura are in the lodge together watching something sort of off screen at the end of Fire Walk With Me. And we still don't know how Cooper gets to there. And that's why I always feel like the Twin Peaks story isn't quite done. And actually, to bring us full circle, the... I think the French film, or the French title, rather, of the film was, like, The Man Who Needed to Know. And that trailer I played at the beginning, it's for, like, that presentation of the film. And it shows everything. It's got Raymond right off the bat. In fact, it's introduced the concept, the hook of the ad is, like, here's this guy trying to plot a murder. Like, that's how you're introduced to it. And uh, not, you know not seeing um, Saskia and Rex until we're well into the trailer, and then we see, like, Rex and Raymond together. Like, he's even telling him like, drink this formula. Like, it's showing the end of the movie. It's crazy how even the film itself, which is has an unusual approach to how it, it feels about spoiling the, the, the plot, like, the trailer goes way past that and just gives you, like, everything, and it also skews it in a way where it seems like it's this almost sort of tongue-in-cheek, dark comedy, Hitchcockian film about a guy who's trying to kidnap women rather than like, you know, the, the, the hunt for the woman who got kidnapped. So it's fascinating to me that that was how the film was actually sold, like presented to audiences. And it adds another layer of complexity to this idea of how do you tell this story? Um, and it also, they, they, I think, end the trailer, or there's like a key part in the trailer where when he's, you know, finally spotting Saskia, you see her reflection in his sunglasses. Um, and that's uh, one more Twin Peaks connection to draw. Of course, seeing the motorcycle in Laura's reflected in Laura's eye uh, is this larger-than-life image that can't quite possibly be physically possible. Like, he actually, she's kind of far away from him, but the shot of it, if you look closely, and you can miss it, but if you look closely, like, you can see, like, a full close-up of her in the car in reflected in his sunglasses, just this kind of chilling moment. Again, the, that's the moment where she becomes the iconography because now she's going he's decided he's going to uh you know take her and and so like we're seeing the literal moment where she goes from being a human to being an icon in that way a few more uh observations about just visuals and concepts and stuff that are in the vanishing that i you know flickered connections to uh twin peaks Uh, the golden egg as i mentioned it resembles those portraits those oval portraits at the end that we see side by side in the newspaper interestingly they're side by side they haven't quite collided yet so there's a little bit of a darkness dark tinge to that as well like are they ever going to collide now that they're in their separate golden eggs i guess that depends on you know whether you believe in an afterlife or not maybe i don't know or or there's a more philosophical answer to it um also golden egg sort of resembling like the the little flame that uh Raymond's looking he has a cigarette lighter inside of the coffin that he's looking at and uh, watching the, the the kind of flame flicker out and seeing the light that resembles the light at the end of the tunnel, that circular tunnel shape with her standing in it. So right away we get the entire microcosm of the film in that opening sequence inside the dark tunnel, which is brilliant. Like the visual depiction of what the entire rest of the film will be of her, him and her separating, um, coming back alone and then remerging with her is the in the you know the golden egg the coffins themselves are the golden eggs buried side by side there and the headlights are often are actually explicitly compared by saskia to golden eggs the headlights of the the two circular lights in the darkness behind them in the tunnel Um, and of course those shots of the man and the woman driving through the darkness with headlights coming threateningly behind them, very similar to part 18 of Twin Peaks there as well. Uh, The idea that they're sharing dream spaces, like he has her dream about the golden egg later on, and that uh, inspires him to go hunting for her again. Dreams are a huge part of this narrative in the way they are of Twin Peaks. The fact that she buries those coins under the tree, burying something as a token of love, uh, the way that Donna and James bury the necklace in the pilot, and of course you know, Saskia and um, Rex themselves buried in the end uh, as well, again, in a way that there's like foreshadowing there. They're burying it in a way, she's burying these coins together as a token, as a sign that he won't abandon her. It's like a pact against death, the way Sarah and uh, Eileen talk about at Leland's funeral, about Laura and Donna making a pact together after one of their aunts died or something, and they... Made a vow, like we won't, you know, we're, we're, we're gonna stick together, we won't die, or some, some odd, it's a bit of odd writing, but it's an interesting idea. And this reminded me of that as well. Um, the fact that Saskia disappears in a convenience store, I mean, you know, that's another interesting little Twin Peaks. You almost wonder at times if, like, Lynch and Frost. Um, I think particularly Lynch, because of the way he works, it would be almost more of a subconscious process. Frost, I think, makes much more overt references to like Laura and Vertigo and stuff where it's like, let's name the character, let's do this. Like Lynch, you get these weird, almost subliminal connections. You wonder if he like went to a film festival or a theater or saw this and it was in the back of his mind or something as he wrote. I- I've actually been wondering that a lot with Mad Men. The end of Mad Men, which came out in the spring of 2015 and uh, Twin Peaks, which he was still kind of, he had finished supposedly writing, but he was doing a lot of rewriting at that time. It was right before they started filming it. And the endings of, there are some interesting similarities, but that's a whole other podcast. So a question that's been on my mind, let's say. And uh, finally, I just want to return, I want to end on this concept of Rex's more darker impulses and trying to solve the mystery of Like he would let her die in a way mentally. Like if I could decide if she was dead and I knew what happened or she lived and I didn't, you know, it's this idea of like letting her die to find out what happened is it ties into this notion of the need to know just the need to know the strict facts of the case becoming greater than an appreciation of the human tragedy, even though the human tragedy is what motivates that needing to know the facts in the first place. And I think this, in a way, is what Lynch was on about when he keeps talking about that mystery wasn't supposed to be solved. mystery was, It's like this idea that somehow the emotional content of it gets emptied out if you focus too strictly on the mechanics of it. and And connecting those two things, that's really the art of like... The truly profound murder mystery or disappearance mystery or anything is to resolve it in a way that actually expands the mystery rather than contracts it. And I think both Twin Peaks and the Vanishing um, managed to do that, where uh, you know that 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 idea of the compulsion to just know the strict facts, it takes on a life of its own that can subvert its own motivation, but the resolution can reroute you back to that human motivation, that empathy, that fear, those baseline emotions that you feel that draw you to the mystery in the first place. Even though Twin Peaks, I guess you could say it becomes about disappearance in a way at, at the end of season three, when Laura disappears, but I mean, it's a murder mystery, and yet it always feels fundamentally like a story about disappearance because of the just the significance of Laura not being there anymore and not being able to get answers because she's not there to all of these complicated questions. So that's compelling. There's another character in the film who I mentioned only briefly, Leineke, the second girlfriend of Rex, who's like helping him, but uh, wants him to move on and is sort of questioning him and then eventually leaves him. And I forgot to mention, she reminds me of Diane in season three in some ways, who comes in after the mysterious other woman has has gone away and still feels haunted by her. And that's it for this episode. Uh, please let me know if you have any thoughts on this film. Always love to share listener feedback, even if it's long after the episode in particular has gone up, so this or any other episode in the archive. We're going to wrap with one more disordered story. So we'll wrap this season in December, and that film is Rashomon, the Akira Kurosawa classic, which is really in many ways the Ur story uh, told out of order to the point where the Rashomon effect is even a word that people use to describe certain types of stories. So here is a taste of that to come for the coming month. <laughs>